0: Oh, Alison's gone. I'll carry on going and assume she'll come back. Yeah, why not? Hello everyone and welcome to Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is a special episode and we don't know when it's coming to you. I'm John Coxon.
1: I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty.
0: And today Liz has made us read a book.
2: Yes, I mean this is the, the first of probably three episodes in which we all read a book. One of us chooses a book and we make the other two read it and then we're going to discuss it for you. And the book which is up first happens to be my choice, so I should start with why I like it and why I made these two read it. So, my book choice is A Face Like Glass by Francis Harding, which is a 2012 book. Uh, it's about an underground city called Caverna, which is full of skilled craftsmen who toil away to make kind of magical delicacies. And we start in the, the cheesemongers. So there is a cheesemonger who makes kind of magical cheeses. And one day he finds a child in his cheese store. whose name is Neverfell. And he adopts Neverfell as his own apprentice. But Neverfell never leaves the cheese factory. Um, and she comes to believe there is something hideously wrong with her because she always is forced to wear uh, a velvet mask. But there is naturally, it's not anything wrong with Neverfell. It's the fact is that Neverfell is the only person in a world where people do not wear their emotions on their face who will naturally kind of have a face that changes with her emotions. So that is the, the face like glass. You can see everything going on in Neverfell's face. And she goes into this very strange city where there are delicacies that can change your memories, give you premonitions, bring back hidden past memories but where no one can ever show emotions on their face unless they have a, a face that they were trained by a face myth to show that particular emotion. And so never fell kind of cannonballs into this world as a kind of agent of chaos. She eventually leaves the cheese shop, falls in with uh, some of the other artisans of Caverna, ends up meeting the leader of Caverna and generally discovering kind of the rot, which sits at the heart of this underground world where the rich you know, feast on precious delicacies and it's the underclass who keeps everything running. And everything is very kind of rigid and constrained, as you might imagine, from a world where you can show only the set of emotions that you have been taught to display Um, and never felt essentially upends the whole thing. So why do I like it? Uh, I think it's one of the first Frances Harding books I've read. I've read nearly all of her books apart from the new one. And I felt John Allison had not read enough of her books and should be made to read more. Um, I just find it it hugely, hugely imaginative. There's a whole load of different different things going on, possibly almost too much stuffed into this book. But, you know, there's whole sections about the cheeses and the names of the different cheeses and a morsel of this cheese will, you know, show you your greatest fear or greatest power. You know, there are wines that can erase memories. At one point, Neverfell meets uh, a man named Maxim Childerson and you can just tell from his name that he is not going to be a good guy.
0: Spoilers, Liz.
1: Nominative determinism.
2: Spoilers, <laughs> if you don't pick that up within the first few minutes. Well, I mean, maybe we'll get into that later, whether it is a little bit too obvious. But I just, I just kind of find that it's very, just kind of filled with delightful things at every turn. I love reading kind of every page of it and reading about the different things. While it also has a, you know, a fairly, some fairly serious messaging and some fairly serious things going on in it. I just love every page of it. And I love Neverfell. I like a lot of Frances Harding's heroes and heroines, um, who are generally children or young adults. And I just love the way she gets plunged into this and essentially ends up winning out by being completely unpredictable because no one really knows what she's going to do, even though she wears all her emotions on her face. So that's why I picked it.
0: So, Alison, have you read the book?
1: I have read the book. I read the book when I was supposed to.
0: Well, all right.
1: (laughs) I read it pretty quickly. It's quite a long book. This is a young adult book, which is pretty chewy. It's about 500 pages, which feels like quite a big book. Um, I read it in, in two or three chunks. I read quite a lot. And then I got to a point where I went, because as Liz says... A lot of different stuff's going on there's this and there's that it's got multiple great premises it's got these these craft projects that have are imbued with magic and it's got the whole face thing um about which I'm going to talk a bit more about and it's got um an extraordinarily interesting cat burglar and it's got this really strange society and it's got underground living and just huge amounts of stuff um and so I got to about halfway through it, and I was like Ugh okay, I I do not myself like to be delighted on every page. I like books that tell me a story where all the words support the overall theme and the underlying message. And I like to you know i i I like to be yes absorbed in a world but you know she kept bringing in a new thing and i'd be going like oh one more thing she's never going to pull this back together and there's far too many loose ends and why am i bothering really and i guess i'll just have to go on and then i think literally in the next chapter she starts bringing it back together and and in fact everything turns out to be all one part of one fairly well put together whole and it all fits in and it's fine It's, it's better than fine it's a really good book Liked it a lot. Um,
0: <laughs> I will. Yeah. I will say I find it hel- like I. I'm, the episode title is going to be "I don't like being delighted on every page" because uh, <laughs> I had never heard such a nihilistic uh, view of literature. Uh, it makes me very happy.
2: I. I mean, I, I do know what you mean. I mean, sorry, do you care? I mean, I mean, it can get a little bit like it is. I mean, for a book which is all about delicacies, it's like it's
1: too much rich food. So the other Frances Harding book I read, I've slightly forgotten the name, is the one about the coastal divers and the old ones and parasy. And and that had far too much stuff on it and I didn't feel it came back together in a satisfying whole. I got to the end of the book, read it, going, oh, I wish I'd read the book that this is obviously a sequel to that she didn't actually write. She wrote this book that 't been my only previous experience. But I think this one, she does actually pull the whole story together. It's got a very good ending, I think. It's pretty great. I wanted to say a little bit more about a couple of things. So my subtitle for this book would be A Child's Guide to the Class War, because this is a, not actually a book about um, cheeses and magic and caverns and wonders and delights at every turn. This is a book about how you systematically oppress an underclass. And that's good. That's the proper, That's the sort of nihilistic theme I like to see in novels. So I really like that. And I wanted to pick up one thing about the faces, which ties into that, which is, if you are a member of said underclass, you are delivered five faces, which include things like expectantly waiting for orders, and diligently carrying out your tasks. And if you're kind of an artisan, a middle class sort of person, you get a fairly good range of faces that gives you a lot of emotions. But only the the super rich people in this world actually get a really good range of faces and can go and get custom faces for particular emotions they want to Exhibit and things like that, and I thought that was quite clever. It also ties into the the whole class war
0: theme of this novel. I enjoyed it. I read it. I read it quicker than I thought I would, because um, uh, as Alison Elizabeth said, it's not a short book, but it does read very quickly. Uh, and I did find uh, several of the concepts very delightful. I found the ending a bit disappointing. I wished it had ended thirty pages earlier. I just. The bit where they all actually make it up to the surface, I was like, I didn't need to see that. Because it just felt, I would much rather an end where the judges had actually taken over Caverna rather than uh, being refugees. I don't know if I like the underlying message of, if you are the oppressed, you can leave, rather than if you are the oppressed, you can rise up. I think that is a very British take on an underclass. I imagine if Francis Harding was French, this book would have gone a different way and I think I would have rather the French ending. But that's a very minor quibble. It's the only thing I didn't like about the novel, Um, and I did very much enjoy especially how Harding brings together some of the characters which don't seem obviously related at the start and brings them together and also kind of makes sense of some of the things that have been happening that as soon as she points them out, you're like, oh, I should have realised that's what's happening, but you're not necessarily thinking about it in a way that would let you notice which i thought was good um i very much enjoyed that i did love the kleptomancer i did think the end of his story arc was like this is a really interesting character i don't really know what to do with him so it ends now and i'm like no i don't i didn't like yeah i didn't think it cohered as well as alison did i don't think but i did still very much enjoy it
2: yes so the the kleptomancer is basically a celebrity uh thief and we discovered that the only way he has managed to pull off his many heists is that he's kind of come up with his entire plan, then erased it all from his memory and now just systematically remembers tiny bits of it at a time so that he never ends up ruining his plan by doing something which would let you predict the rest of his plan, which is just kind of convoluted and brilliant. And in the end of it, he basically gets a point where he, he gets a message, you know, that he obviously, his past self wrote to him saying, if you're reading this message, well done, your grand plan has come to fruition enjoy essentially ruling the city and it's kind of about like clearly what the kleptomancer wanted originally was power but now he's ended up with power that he doesn't really know why he ended up wanting the power so basically by erasing his own memory he's almost become a different person and i don't know i kind of like the symbolism of the ruler of this kind of very empty you know hollow society being a man who's basically erased all of his memories and now can't remember why he spent years and years setting up this elaborate plan to to be the ruler because he wasn't he's not
0: the same person who set it up that's a good read of it and i hadn't thought about it like that that's good
1: that delivered the ending that john wants as well because i think it's made pretty explicit that he is on the side of the drudges and is now going to deliver a more egalitarian society where they don't do all the nonsense that you see at the beginning of the novel And in exchange, in the outside world, because we assume that we're going to get some free trade as a result of this, in the outside world, they will now have the artisanal skills that Caverna has been holding to itself and all the magic. So it is extremely disruptive. There's no suggestion that Caverna's going to go on as before. I I thought that was fine. And I I liked the kleptomancer's ending. And I really liked the way that Selectively removing bits of memory was key to the plot of this novel, and I would have quite have liked to have seen a bit more of that i 'd also have liked to have seen it brought into play earlier in the novel so But this may be a thing that would make it more like an adult novel so this is there is a how much you can you do of this in young adults so they they do a certain amount of it and they explicitly say that 's what they 're doing You know if this had been written for adults, I think you 'd probably have had Lacuna in the plot earlier. On that you would realise made sense because of the because of the memory removals, but that that doesn't happen because it, it's not a very complicated. It, it's complicated in kind of um, plot and st- structure, but it's not kind of it doesn't have that second level of complication that that a more tricksy adult novel would probably have.
2: Yeah, I think it's a it's a fairly straightforward plot, and it is kind of a little bit episodic kind of have the first section where, you know, she's with Grandable, the cheese, the cheesemonger. I love the name Grandable. And then she's coming out and discovering this new society and you get to do the very lovely thing where the central character is discovering the society at the same time as we are. And so you can introduce everything through her eyes. And then there's kind of a segment with the leader of Caverna who Neverfell ends up working for as a poison tester um, and who uh, comes to a not particularly sad end uh, and then you kind of get into the end section where, you know, Neverfell is on the run, discovers what's going on with the drudges, and then, you know, leads them, many of them, to the surface of Caverna. So it's kind of like split into chunks, but it kind of has a section with the, the leader of Caverna and kind of gets that done and out of the way. So it's not trying to pull in every single thing together at the end. I don't know if that's a way of making sure you don't necessarily have to remember a crucial thing that happened on page 200 by the time you get to page 500.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair.
1: Oh, oh no, it does though, because the poisoning is all part of one of the many grand plans that are playing out through this novel. So so many of the characters have a plan. Neverfell's really the only one who doesn't. I did have, because I think about the faces a lot. I was like, this book has several great premises, but the, the faces are, I think, the most great of them. There are a couple of things that I felt unclear about. I believe that the reason that the drudges have very few faces is because the children are separated from their parents and then put into a nursery where nurses have only show them the faces they want to learn but that doesn't really explain to me why the rest of the people in the society are going along with the whole separating children so that they they don't learn all of the possible emotions and i'm also quite skeptical about the idea that you'd actually be able to interpret facial recognitions if you'd never learned to as a baby. So those two things, I feel, were were kind of big holes that, you know, fantasy books can have big holes in them, it's fine. But I, I always go, well, this feels like a, a big hole to me.
2: I don't think the first one is a hole because it's kind of explicitly mentioned that all the babies are strange and silent. And I think the implication is it's something about being in Caverna Who is implied as a sort of maybe a living magical organism.
0: They specifically say that babies born in Caverna don't have facial expressions. And it's not just the drudges. It's all babies born in Caverna. They have to be taught them. Um, And it makes perfect sense to me that, um, you know, in a world where... I think in this world we have a severe disparity between the quality of care that newborns get, depending on how much money their parents have. So I think criticizing Harding for reflecting that in a fantasy novel is maybe is is maybe looking at our own world with a, too rosy a complexion. Because um,
1: no, well, well, as I said, it's a class
0: war novel, right? So I think criticizing it for accurately reflecting the class war is probably not a fair criticism. Um, but I also think that in terms of not fully explaining caverna it is fully explained it's magic <laughs> like i do not mind a fantasy novel being like there's some magic that that like i don't need i don't need like i love that the expanse explains ftl and like has like a coherent thing but i also don't mind that star wars is just like there are hyper drives and it's fine and star trek is like we have warps and those are numbers and they don't really make any sense but we didn't we,
2: but if you go up 10, you turn into a lizard, John.
0: <laughs> like, the, I think you're allowed one kind of, uh, this is just this is just like a thing you're going to have to go along with, especially, especially in fantasy. But I think a lot of genre novels do tend to... Um, I, th- I think this novel
1: might have more than one thing like that.
0: I don't... Th- I didn't... Th- the only thing I don't think is fully explained is like, well, like the true delicacies. Like, and the fact that it's magic. But it is magic, and that is enough explanation for me. I don't know. I, I, and I think she uses it to do interesting enough stuff that I'm not annoyed, I guess.
1: When I said I didn't think Caverna was properly explained, it's just kind of it suggested that Caverna is a kind of magical living organism. But I would have liked a bit more about why, you know, motivations for my magical living city.
2: So I one of the things I kind of love is how she sets up the face as being like, you know, you can literally read someone's class from their face, because of how many emotions they have. But she also doesn't neglect to say, you know, the drudges are shorter, the drudges, you know, do not have access to good food and water, the drudges do not look to be in good health. Whereas the the higher up citizens of Caverna are, are functionally immortal, thanks to delicacies they can afford to take so i like that that all ties together about caverna the city i mean i don't know i like i like a bit of bit of uncertainty i mean it was not really clear to me whether caverna is really a living organism and the the cartographers are learning to speak the language of the 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 place or whether the cartographers are just having some kind of enormous shared mass delusion and what's going on there so you know i'm gonna i'm i'm all right to go with that as just a, a thing
0: your point about um, the judges and not having access to faces that let them kind of express themselves is really interesting because I think it reflects the state of media. I'm I'm wondering whether it's designed to reflect how much more control the people in our culture who have wealth who have wealth and power have over what we see and hear versus like you and me. Like the number, of, the number of times that you're like, oh, the reason everyone thinks X is because someone with a lot of money bought a lot of Twitter accounts and like fed that message and like kind of affected the conversation and, and before that people like Murdoch and, and stuff. I'm wondering whether the judge's lack of ability to emote is kind of getting at that a little bit, um, which is interesting. I do think this book clearly has a lot to say about class and is doing it very cleverly in general. Uh, And I liked that a lot.
2: Yeah, and it feels like... I don't really know enough about children's literature to say this. We need uh, Ali Baker on this. Farah, But I'm sure there's like a a long tradition of kind of like, you know, little little lost orphans who go and find a magical city and see what's going on. So it feels kind of very much in, in that sort of tradition of children's books, but with... It just loads going on.
0: I have a question that might be unfair. Do you think that Neverfell being the catalyst for the drudges, like at the end of the book, is a sort of saviour thing? Is that problematic? Because she is not a drudge. She is an outsider. Or like, is it understandable that a children's book that you have a heroine and they make the plot go? And how do you square that circle, I guess?
2: That's interesting because she is kind of an outsider but you could argue what she brings them is she literally brings them the tools of rebellion on her face um, and she, she does catalyzes, But you know, it's not that she persuades them all to rebel. They were kind of almost primed to do it but didn't have the tools to do it themselves. And I think Harding does bring in Erstwhile a lot who is Neverfell's um, drudge friend and really kind of maybe only genuine friend in the book who doesn't have his own sort of hidden agenda for which he's using Neverfell. Um yeah, you could argue you could you could maybe have made a bit more of that because she is the outsider. Um but that's also a classic plot, isn't it? Kind of the outsider who, you know, brings tale of brings something new in or stories of something new and that leads to a rebellion happening.
1: Yes, and I think the the society's been structured so the drudges. Needed a catalyst here. I, I'm not sure how you could have told this story to have a drudge-led rebellion, given the premise. Though, though, Neverfell does point out that the drudges have found other ways that are not their faces to express emotion to each other, and do that quite a lot. And you don't hear that about the upper class family that we 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 meet and spend time with.
0: Yeah, who are I think it's fair to say assholes. Although, no, um, the cheesemaker isn't. But most of the other upper class people we meet are not nice people. Cheesemaker made- cheese is artisanal class. Um, Well, the cheesemaker has been at court but has rejected it, which I think is the key thing, right? Like, he has the class and then rejects it.
1: So the courtiers are kind of soaked in it and... It's not that they're all being actively terrible. It's that quite a few of them haven't really thought about it. You know, they, they, they're very unquestioning about their privilege. So that that's one of the themes, isn't it? You know, they don't wonder why it is that they're growing stronger and fitter than other people around them.
2: Yeah, and we see that, you know, Grandable rejects that in one way by essentially walling himself off from the rest of the city. And then we see uh, Zuel, the niece of our villain Maxim Childerson who she doesn't really befriend Neverfell at the start. She's happily going along with her uncle's schemes and, and using Neverfell where she fits in with it. But she is the character who really does come to have all that challenged and 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 in the end reject it and decide actually, yeah, this is a corrupt city and 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 I'm getting out.
0: It's interesting because although at the beginning I completely believe like Zuel as a very um manipulative person who is using neverfell for whatever she can use neverfell for by the end i also completely believe that neverfell has won her over um and i like the book's kind of testament to sometimes if you put trust in someone or if you put your friendship in someone they will like that will kind of reap its own dividend and i like that as an as a message generally uh maybe because i am a sap
2: Trusting soul, John. I am. It did also ring true to me that you can see how being friends with Neverfell could be incredibly annoying at times. I mean, she's a wonderful character, but she is can be quite irritating. You know, she's kind of constantly on the move. Everything is new to her. She takes an interest in everything. She's got a you know ten second attention span, um and I find that to be a very realistic, you know, a very realistic depiction of someone. You don't want her to be the perfect saint who comes to bring rebellion
1: okay um so, so yeah, she's taking the role of a child in this novel, and so yes, she does all the things that children do she's very naive, she's very trusting, she fails to appreciate the political shenanigans which are completely ludicrous i i mean that they're, they're 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 very much ramped up from even the even the maddest real world courts because and, and that's shown as a function of the grand steward having had a 500-year reign in which everyone else at court has been developing backstabbing strategies. I mean, I, I really liked Neville Fell. I thought she was a very enjoyable character to follow along
0: with. I didn't interpret Neville Fell as the child at all. I interpreted her as a love letter to ADHD. <laughs> and I was like, I saw a lot of me in Neville Fell. I very much liked the solution of maybe just not planning will work. And it did. And I was like, good. Because that is, again, it speaks to me. I don't know whether that was on purpose. Um, I don't know whether Harding has any uh, experience with ADHD or any friends with ADHD. Uh, But certainly I saw aspects of me in the character. And that, that made me happy. I did also, there's, I don't know, there's a lot. The part at the end where the novel turns into a heist We haven't really talked about that, but there's a part at the end where Harding uses like a very kind of tried and tested heist movie trope to great effect, which I enjoyed very thoroughly. And that was very good Um, because this, I guess this is as much about memory as it is about class, but it's, I don't know quite what it's trying to say about memory as much, but it's clearly a recurring theme.
2: The ending basically puts in the position where the readers know less than Neverfell
0: does. Yeah.
2: I guess trying to say she has now figured out this world a bit we're not learning about it with her but she knows what's going on and so it is one of these complicated things where everyone's erased parts of their own memories um which is like in a heist movie where you see things going on and you don't really know the secret twist that's going to ha- occur and in this case no one knows the secret twist that's going to happen because they erase a bit of their brain that, that knows about the secret twist um so i enjoyed all that
0: Yup, because it's great liz I've I've got a soft spot for heists in general, so I did I very much enjoyed that whole thing. There's a lot of different stuff in this book. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think that might be that might be why I picked it. I mean, there's a there's you know quite a few Frances Harding books, and I think most people would probably pick maybe Fly by Night from her early ones, or you know something like The Light Tree, which I think got more widespread acclaim. I think I just like this one for having a sort of Let's let's kind of cram in six different ideas and make them work. Maybe a later one's a bit more kind of focusing on one thing and uh, in a more kind of controlled way. But I've got a soft spot for for this one because it's just got everything in there.
0: This book has everything. Uh, but imagine I'm saying it like Bill Hader in SNL uh, to get the joke, listeners. No, and this actually might be because I've always preferred early Pratchett to late Pratchett. Like, I Colour of Magic is one of my very favourite books, and I think that might be also because. He's not trying to tell tight satires that have like a central message. (laughs) He's just telling loads of jokes and having a good time. And I very much enjoy that kind of just romp through like romp through a a thing. Um, Yeah, I I wonder whether I wonder whether that is something that I also feel I haven't read any late Harding. So maybe I should read it and let you know.
2: Let me give me one minute to look up her bibliography, and then I will tell you which one of the late ones I might recommend. I mean, I quite—I think Alison read *Deep Light*, which I quite like, but it's
1: not—I would say one of the best. I mean, I, I think it—it it may be. I suspect that some of her ambition in with that novel is in—is in areas that I—I'm not very interested in and I found the kind of central adventure story to be rather dull. I, I enjoyed this one a great deal more than that. Uh, but I will read more for Harding probably.
2: Yeah, I mean I do like Fly By Night and the sequel Twilight Robber Robbery and uh they've got a goose. Yeah, and I think other than that I I like the lie tree, which is essentially a there's, there's a tree um which bears fruit if you lie to it. And again, it's one of these great ideas where you then kind of unravel all the possibilities of it. John, you really need to read *Fly by Night* and *Twilight Robbery* because you need to know why Mosca the cat is called Mosca.
0: I have read, I have read one other Harding book, and I should have, if I was a good co-host, looked up which one it was in advance. *A Skinful of Shadows* is the other one I've read. I gave it four stars.
2: Skinful of Shadows is the one with the Civil War setting, isn't it? I think. Yes.
0: Yep. And um, Make Peace has a ghost in her. Yes. I remember enjoying it. Um, I don't remember many of the actual details. I just have an impression of having enjoyed it. But no, I will will probably read more Harding uh, in the future because I have liked the two books of hers I read. I think I would give this book a five star. So maybe I liked it more than Skinful of Shadows.
1: Ooh,
2: I'm going to declare my pick a success even before we hear what Alison would give it.
1: Yeah, because I, as as John finds very annoying, I have stopped giving star ratings to things.
2: Um. It's true that my Goodreads rankings are sort of like, they're not like a nice normal distribution. They're sort of really like tightly compressed around like the 3.5 to 4 star mark because I don't know. I feel bad like because everything on Goodreads is like pushed up to the higher end of the star rating distribution. So I feel bad if I just like, oh, yeah, well, that was all right. And I give it two stars and it drags the rating down. But I also try not to put star ratings on books by friends or not for a little
1: while later.
0: Anyway, what did you think of the book, Alison?
1: Overall, I thought it was jolly good. I think people should read it if they like, um, you know, fantasy that's got some some pretensions to doing more than just telling a story um books about eh, interesting societies i do. It it's fine and it is quite long but it's an easy read so you know it's a great book to to just get stuck
0: into and enjoy recommended do you have do you, oh do you want to sum up liz do you have anything you want to sum
2: no just i'm 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 glad you liked the book. I'm glad uh, I liked rereading the book. And I'm glad that, you know, sometimes when everyone likes a book, the discussion is not actually that interesting because it's like, oh, we all like that. Hmm. Um, So I'm glad we got a good discussion out of it uh, without having to pick a really contentious choice or anything.
0: Don't worry, listeners, because when we've done the first three of these, we'll be starting to pick more avant-garde choices, and I'm sure Liz will pick a couple of absolute shockers uh, in that bit.
2: <laughs> but they
0: will be they will be shockers that Liz picks as revenge for the fact that at some point I will make both of my co-hosts read Rogue Squadron by Michael A. Stackpole, a book with no redeeming literary merit whatsoever, <laughs> but which I still love.
1: Okay, so... <laughs> I'm not convinced you're going to like my choice, guys. I should probably reread it and then make sure I am happy to still recommend it.
2: I can't remember either of your choices. Anyway, that's for me. That was the Octothorpe podcast and
0: it's goodbye from me.
2: It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Oh, there's a cat behind you, John.
0: What? It's a cat behind you. Is there? <gasps> Hello. She says meow. She enjoyed the book too because I read it under her uh, most of it. And so she got a lot of cuddles this week. Uh, so she was a big fan of that. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin McLeod and Combatech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license.
2: This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.